Hello and welcome to the third episode of Mike McNair's Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Thursday the 7th of March 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. Today we continue our discussion on the first chapter, Marxism as a Political Strategy, which lays out the traditional political strategy designed by Marx and Engels and refined by Babel, Liebknecht and Kautsky. If you'd like to help out keep the episodes flowing, you too can join the Patreon gang gang from only $5 a month. We are only a few patrons short from the magic number 50, which will mean the production of an extra Patreon-only podcast every month. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. I try my best to respond to each and every one of them. Also make sure to like, subscribe and share, and you can join me on Facebook or Twitter too. This week the discussion is led by Lexi as my internet connection was a wee bit too dodgy. Welcome, we are live with Revolutionary Strategy Part 3. We have ourselves a merry little panel here. We have Grant from uh, Swampside. Hello Lexi, good to be here. Of course we have the immortal uh, Tom O'Brien, Chief Officer Tom O'Brien from Alpha 2 Omega. Yeah, Commandante Alpha here. We have the lovely and talented Sophia from Trans Trans Revolution back again. Hi, Sophia, representing the Gay Queer Communist Sect. And joining us for the first time today is Dan. Well, I know Dan as a uh, Swampside listener and patron, a, a loyal Bonapartist follower. But Dan, I think, can introduce himself. Hi, I'm Dan. I guess I don't have official affiliations other than I was once a member of the DSA Refoundation Caucus. I did want to ask a little bit about the DSA Refoundation Caucus, because when we were talking about it a little bit before, it sounded like it was a sort of micro-left unity effort. And as we know, the subtitle of this book is The Challenge of Left Unity. And part of the critique that we've been building in the last couple episodes is this idea of what's wrong with left unity. So could you maybe talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so Refoundation was an attempt to get some sort of left unity inside DSA off the ground of just people who agreed broadly that they were Marxists and agreed on some tactical principles, like we should do base building, we should do left unity, obviously, we should do political education. But those differences sort of never got addressed openly. So you had this organization with just like Malice and Trotskyist and a few McNairs and some open, just non-denominational socialists. And because they never got addressed, they sort of boiled underneath the surface and would become issues at times when you had to take like crucial decisions. So without that like open political discussion, it just produced a lot of internal tension and like not very much ever actually got done in the organization aside from just people doing things in their communities. There's a sort of like parallel we were making, I think a couple episodes ago to the left unity effort in the United Kingdom that this book was written in the context of and how the weekly worker for, I think it was about a year, Tom called it without even looking it up, but uh, it was, it's about a year of coverage in the weekly worker of just all the miserable, like, shit slinging that was happening between these sects trying to hide their differences and vie for power and it lasts about a year and fizzles the fuck out we're all 
looking at this in our, our like, I guess most of us are, are in the United States, but Tom, of course, is not. There's a sort of, I don't know, we got into this idea of where the Marxist center, the organization, the U.S., was getting its idea of center from. And from talking to organizers within it, I had this idea that they were getting it more from the scholar Hal Draper. Whereas if you're a McNairist, you have an obvious idea of what the center is that is maybe different. But as we were talking about before, it's a bit scrambled, actually, for the context of the United States. I don't know if, if we really like laid out perfectly what the difference between these things are, is. And I think it'll become relevant as we're sussing it out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of Hal Draper's version of the center, I suppose, is what he calls the political center. So I'll read a couple of quotes from the 1973 pamphlet, Anatomy of the Microsect. What should be done to prepare the ground for the eventual formation of a socialist movement slash party in America? That is a mass-based socialist formation, which is the political expression of the working class moving towards a collision with the established powers of capitalist society. We first address ourselves to the individual socialist who wonders what he or she should do and can do other than join the sect of his choice and waste his energies in the vicissitudes of sect life. You have the opportunity for undertaking a two-sided socialist enterprise keyed to your own circumstance. We suggest the following double-barreled liaison for you, both sides of which are necessary for the whole thing to be meaningful. One, your basic contribution to the eventual formation of a socialist movement is what you do to develop a socialist circle around you, where you are now. We are thinking in the first place of your role in the workplace, factory, office, school, or whatever. Uh, first things first, what the American working class needs First of all, is the crystallization of an organized militant opposition in the trade unions, et cetera. This opposition must be a loyal opposition, et cetera. And so the second criterion is, but the role of a political center need not be carried by a sect. Historically, this job has been done most often and most successfully by a paper or other publication of a socialist political center, which is organized simply as an editorial board or other editorial enterprise. Iskra was only one of dozens of examples of how this was done as socialist movements came into existence all over the world, Iskra being the uh, Russian social democratic newspaper that Lenin worked for. Historically also, political centers of this sort have frequently undertaken organizing functions as their influence spread, the organizing being the product or byproduct of its agents and representatives. The point would be utterly lost if these enterprises were considered merely literary enterprises in the usual bourgeois sense, there's a continuous line which has carried such political centers from their functions as producers of literature to their role as centers for the stimulation of organization, one form or, or another. We mention them not to celebrate their work necessarily, but to exhibit alternatives to the sect road. And so he later summarizes his advice for the individual socialist who wants to, quote, do something as follows. One, crystallize a circle of co-thinkers around you wherever you are in the course of your activity in the arena of, of the social struggle that goes along with your situation, you are the smallest unit political center there is. And then two, make contact with a political center that makes sense from your point of view for help in literature, advice, link-ups, and yada yada. You'll use your money not for the sect's funds drives, but to finance your own work. If enough, take this course to break up the sect system. That would be a good thing for the future potentialities of an American socialist movement. So if you were looking at that, it sounds quite different from what Marxism Center sounds like to me. It looks like Marxism Center is more of a kind of a project 
in that they're looking for a joining of sex and a kind of a snowball effect. As I, in, not what they say, but what, what, how you would diagnose it from the outside. I, I guess from the outside, it looks like it, it, it sort of kind of has this character of uh, attempting to do a left unity project. But I think if it's like, if we're talking about like a neo Kotskyist like organization, I don't think it fits that. Is that does that make sense? Vaguely, it does make sense. I guess, you know, what makes this different from a normal left unity effort? And I guess I would only qualify that. McNair wants a specific kind of left unity effort that maybe, maybe there's this, the points of unity process, you could say, if you're a defender of Marxist Center, would have been like a McNair-inspired attempt, maybe. Even though other left unity efforts do points of unity, and McNair is critical of those, everyone was doing these points of unity, or at least a lot of them were doing points of unity with the idea of principled programmatic unity in mind, although no such program has emerged. I think what distinguishes them, perhaps from this like McNair's view, is it seems like they're using their points of unity to get like a kind of tactical unity where they're using the same tactics to organize the class more than they are any type of unified program. Like it seems like the points of unity are just a way for them to get to a point where they can function in the same organization as each other rather than develop their political line. It seems politically instrumental more than a, a really principled stake of like what Marxism is about. But that's different than what Dan is saying. And thank you for clarifying my mistake there, Dan, because for a moment there, I was like, what is the difference between Marxist Center and what McNair wants? McNair is, is less interested in the base building McNair is interested in building an institution so that once the class gets going, they can do something with a long-term, some kind of resource that's there that was built when the struggle wasn't hot. Is that what he's saying? Ultimately, like, I think he, he thinks that there needs to be a working class party that can make something of class struggle once it reaches a height and he thinks that this needs to be built up over a long-term horizon, revolutionary patience. I think in practice, every McNairist project I've been involved with, and I, and I think it's, McNair is smart. You know, He kind of runs into the limits of being a Marxist wonk, in my view, but he's a great critic. But every, positively speaking, every McNairist project that I've been in, involved with has hit these limits. I don't think that these projects are trying to do that exactly where they're trying to make something that would be productive for the proletariat to take over like what use would the proletariat have taking over i don't know red party back when that existed or taking over like marxist center even if it reaches its ideal goals i don't think i think that these these political sects develop such perverse incentives that they become these warped sectarian organizations that wouldn't really be useful for a re-socialized emergent proletarian movement to take. I think that that's going to want to develop its own organizations. So like, what is it about these sects then do you think that are deleterious to that? Well, I think a lot of them are so concerned with the internals of the left and run into the limits of politics as an alienated sphere where people are asking, ah, oh, what can I do? What can I do? Like capitalism's not producing organic struggle in the proletariat enough. And they jump into these sectarian 
internal political left projects instead of, you know, even Draper is saying kind of look around yourself and, and see what are your what are your social interests and what are the social interests of your circles? Because early unions may have had socialists involved, but they also had the involvement of the people who who they they advanced the interests of. And when you're instrumentally just doing a project to build the left, I think that it undermines its ability to generate a social base. So instead of creating a union to build the left, it should be creating a union to get a material benefit to people. And thus, that will in itself build a left more so than this kind of building the left. I, mean, left I, have, I, I don't want to turn this into the anti-politics podcast. I have questions yeah. about the value of the left as like a place where politics axiomatically defines itself as emancipatory and when you look at the 20th century how that has turned out and like how marxism should associate itself with the left but i think that that can maybe go beyond this discussion this is actually if we ever get to the chapter basically lays out what marxist politics is in in the broadest strokes at least what McNair considers, you know, historically speaking, situated in like the first international where you had the Bakuninists, the people following Bakunin and like anarchists on the left. And you had the Lasallians, you know, people that wanted to make a sort of alliance with the aristocracy against the bourgeoisie and have state funding for, you know, their movement more or less, you know, what ended up in that center in a way there is an even broader center of socialist strategy outside Marxism. And Marxism is the center of that, if you really want to get obnoxious about it. Okay. Well, like before we go there, I'd like to say, I think I'd like to say something about the group, the, the existing groups, the existing type of left sects and their kind of obsession with the Soviet Union or Mao. And I, I was saying to off air that I, I think that like anything that smells of any of of the 20th century bad errors actually yeah will immediately turn somebody off and that if we are to think about say this book and marxism as in any way not just some kind of larping for the left we have to think about how do you get a mass party to build and for me the minute you have pictures of lenin a star uh, you know, a sickle and a hammer, any of this stuff, the minute you start like talking about 1917 in a way that's not purely educational, it, it just smells so bad to the man on the street that it, or the woman on the street. It's that it, it, it's an instant turn off. And the one thing I was saying to people before the show started, like if you ask like liberal Americans, Right, and you ask them, do you think like during the Cold War, all the fascists that were put in power in South America that was in, that was necessary, that's something that you should defend? Probably whether they want to admit it or not, would probably a large portion will say yes. But we don't see the Democratic or the Republican Party or any Western political parties of any major note putting like phalangist or Nazi symbols in their literature or ever talking ever talking about fascism and how it had its good and its bad points just politically to me it's just like it's just cyanide to me in like the mcnair sense of like the left wing and the right wing of socialism 
they're kind of the inverse of each other in this question of like Soviet defensism, right? Like, so you have anarchists and maybe some council communists on the left who are going so ham about Stalinism, like it's some actually existing threat, right? What I tell them is that no, you'll never see Stalinism in America. You probably will never see Stalinism in any Western bourgeois democracy. Like it's just not going to happen. Going, being so afraid of like some kind of authoritarian communist regime rising up is just ridiculous and, and kind of childish in my mind. But at the same time, for people who go ham about defending these regimes, I honestly want to sell, tell them the same thing. Like, if there's no point to defending ghosts, you know what I mean? Like, sure, let's educate people about what these movements were, and there is a lot of value in studying the history. But beyond that, defending these things that don't exist and have failed is nothing but a turnoff to most working Americans. And so to me, like that kind of does fit a little bit with this like left, right, center schema. And I think that gets to the fact that peasant Marxism doesn't have a social base in the United States. One of the reasons that Maoism and Stalinism and even Leninism fall flat on their face to a lot of people is that they seem kind of anachronistic in a lot of our context. But I think also something about what Tom was saying, you know, personally, I have a Soviet flag in my room, maybe. But uh, I think that imagery is produced by struggle. And so much of the left clings to this old imagery because they're more concerned with the internals of the left than whatever sporadic class activity we've seen in the 21st century so far, like 15M or now, you know, this isn't exactly mass activity, but it's got a class component in the yellow vests. And, but also extant activity is low. So of course, we're seeing a lack of, of imagery because I think it's class struggle that creates new imagery and new forms. I think that's a major point that, you know, to cling to these ones, it's like it's archaic it's like ancient religious imagery. I just went and had a look at what are Podemos's and Syriza's imagery, the two kind of European ones that took off, you know, radical left parties that took off. There's not any old imagery involved in there. Even the colors, I'm not making a case for either of them as, as parties. I'm just saying, you know, anything that sniffs of Stalin or anything like this, the reason why, say, Syriza took off versus, say, the Communist Party took off in, in Greece, probably a lot of that has to do with that idea of the smell. I, I really like Grant's idea of the imagery will come from the struggle. It has to be like something that comes organically out of it. And we should be thinking and getting artists and stuff working on that stuff. I think there's an extent to which also, I don't want to go too deep into this psychoanalytic mode, but where this defensism is evidence of this like anxiety about the possibility for socialism in a similar way to like how someone like david graber puts a lot of emphasis on like quote-unquote primitive communism as an evidence that it's possible i think there's a similar thing going on there with soviet defensism where it's a lot less terrifying of a prospect than you know realizing that we have to jump off into the void of the future and create something new this is something that the communizers they're they're kind of like Marxian ways or Marxist ways of of framing you know what McNair would call you know Bakuninism essentially, but you know they're actually very ins insightful on this. They also seem to believe that class unity is blocked, and so what we get instead are these fictive unities, these like placeholders that will take the name. So like an Occupy it would have been the ninety nine percent, 
you know, in Spain, it's the indignados, you know, in France right now, it's the yellow vests. It's these symbolic rolling, like, you know, hashtag kind of things that you sort of fight for. And in a weird way, there was a commune article that was talking about the yellow vest recently. It parallels the way that the the nation worked in the old Paris commune. Um, I don't know if they're making that point sp- like specifically, but somebody pointed out, oh, you know, they're kind of being soft on nationalism and the way that the nation figures into these yellow vest riots or, you know, the yellow vest protests. But, you know, look at Marx's description of the Paris commune. He is talking about something that was wrestling a, a class character into the language of the nation. So it's, this is not alien to Marxism. And very probably when we're dealing with class unity, it's going to be mediated through these other like cultural uh, factors. I guess in my mind, I view, I don't know what you would think of like the vanguard or like the political left as Grant has talked about, like as kind of playing a role of building institutions, because I think you need both like the spontaneous class-based movement as well as like left to build institutions for them to plug into so that they don't just sputter out. And I think this concept also applies to symbols too, because if it's just left to pure spontaneity, it gets stuck in this kind of left populist framework. And I think Occupy is a case in point. It got so stuck in this 99% framework, which is to me widely inaccurate and includes way too many people who I would consider to be class traders, people who are petite bourgeois, who have no interest in any kind of revolutionary change and i think that that's problematic but i think the problem with like left politicos if you will is that they are too attached to old symbols and instead of saying like hey let's create a new symbol together that's more meaningful than just simply the 99 percent they just sort of want to throw around hammer and sickles i would just say that i think occupy's limits show like this the the limits of being politically funneled by the left into that kind of BS letter rhetoric, if anything. Like I, I I think that that came and a lot of the problems of Occupy came from this weird layer of like civil, social, like leadership, wannabe, politico class type people putting forward these. It, 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 I think that it's, it's Occupy is interestingly mixed in how quickly it got like leftized, but then there were positive elements as well. But I, I, I do, I guess I shouldn't distract us too much from the text. Let's go on. So Marxism as a political platform. Okay, so he uses the French Workers' Party draft that Marx does with this guy, uh, Jules Guesde. <laughs> Uh, I mentioned him only because there was a dispute in the French Workers' Party between the two of them about what the meaning of that program was. Marx was dead serious about all the reforms in it, and Guesde was just sort of doing it because he thought once the workers see these things fail, then they'll become revolutionary. But th- it, this really draws out what is special about Marx. So very concisely expressed in the preamble of the 1880 program of the Parti Ouvrier, drafted by Marx, is this. That the emancipation of the productive class is that of all human beings without distinction of sex or race, that the producers can be free only when they are in possession of the means of production, land, factories, ships, banks, credit. Um, That there are only two forms under which the means of production can belong to them. One, the individual form, which has never existed in a general state, 
and is increasingly eliminated by industrial progress to the collective form, the material intellectual elements, which are constituted by the very development of capitalist society. And this collective appropriation can arise only from the revolutionary action of the productive class or proletariat organized in a distinct political party. That such an organization must be pursued by all the means the proletariat has as its, at its disposal, including universal suffrage, which will thus be transformed from the instrument of deception that it has been until now into an instrument of emancipation. So that's the, that's the core, he says, that this builds off of the stuff from the Communist Manifesto, but then adds this additional element that the proletariat must be organized in their own distinct party which um, although sometimes it is thought that's thought to be the implication of the communist manifesto, since it's the manifesto of the communist party that is, you know, put out by this little communist league. It is not never specifically stated. In fact, at the end of the communist manifesto, they're kind of waffle on it. So this is probably the most important advocation of a distinct party, but it should be said that party doesn't mean to them what it means to us exactly. Okay, well, uh, why don't we discuss about what they thought about the party? Yeah, so <laughs> he even says this. To call a party Marxist does not in the least entail that it should be, for example, a Trotskyist party, a party which held to the strategic line of Kautsky's road to power without the political conclusions of Kautsky's theoretical statism and nationalism, which flowered more fully in his later work, would still be a Marxist party. I guess it's no. most important to state that First of all, obviously, the whole concept of the Leninist party didn't exist. That's, I think, it should be the most obvious thing. But when people think of a Marxist party, a lot of them are thinking of that. Now, on the other hand, a mass party is also something that's still kind of forming. And in a lot of ways, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, the, the SPD, is kind of the prototypical, one of the prototypical like European parties. There's definitely parties beforehand, but there's never been like a mass party quite like the SP Day. Is he thinking also along the lines of the Chartists in England? Yeah, he's thinking something much, a little broader and a little looser than even like the mass parties that we're thinking of. The problem with this question is that party before, you know, before basically around the time of where Marx dies is not as concrete it's basically more like tendency, more like talking about a tendency. And it was so-called parties. They were so-called parties because they were sort of like groups of people that were chilling together. I mean, that sounds dumb, but it, you know, it's kind of true. Whereas the, the mass party of an SP day, they want a mass membership. They want to build a base for their party. Is it more of a movement? The, the sense in which Marx calls party is like a movement? Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. Also, somewhat, I guess maybe in Marx's younger life, the predominant form of political organization was like clubs. I think the most famous of which is like the Jacobin Club, which many political organizations partner themselves after. These like semi-secretive, not very public political organizations, which were not really able to be mass parties and had usually a very sort of hierarchical structure in a way that later parties like the SPD wouldn't. Or at least they wouldn't have the same type of sort of secret hierarchy. I think this might be one of the one of those ways in which we could say that we 
perhaps have sharpened our analysis since the times of Marx, meaning that perhaps like we need a more concrete idea of what a party is. And part of what we're debating now is that like, what is a better formation for a party, like a mass party, the kind of Marxist-Leninist party that's very centralized, the kind of Jacobin style of party that Dan was talking about, or political clubs. Like, what is the best form of a modern party if if Marx's idea was a bit too nebulous and of its time? I would argue that McNair neglects the question of whether a party is premature, or at least to call one an organization a workers' party, it would be a workers' party in name only in the present day. McNair leaves very little room for the possibility that the proletariat needs to get a sense of itself in some way or or something before these kinds of party formations can be relevant. I think one thing that we need to also think about too is that like forming a, a party, especially a political party in the United States, they're very different task than it is in parliamentary uh, bourgeois democracies. Like we can form a political party and even like have some degree of officiality, but it's not gonna really do anything. It's gonna be way less effective and it's already very ineffective in a lot of cases in European parliamentary democracies. But in the United States, it's almost pointless in some ways. Like I think there is a potential for like running, you know, troll candidates and doing kind of like a an electoral propaganda of the deed to be oppositional, and I think that's fine. But I think anything more than that, it, you're going to run into a lot of problems. And I think I almost prefer the kind of idea of like a, what McNair would later call like a party of activists, that in like the sense of like a, you know the Black Panther Party. I think that almost is a better idea of it. Even if you do run some troll candidates at times, I think basing it more on like trying to build mutual aid institutions and trying to build trade unions and things like that, or help with trade unions, I think is a better way to go about it. And that kind of also goes back into like my my belief in like the Luxembourgist kind of idea of, of a dialectical relationship between a vanguard that is just the most advanced revolutionary aspect of the working class versus the spontaneity of the workers' movement. Like they both need each other, you know, and you can't control the spontaneity or force it, but you also need some kind of institutions and leadership for spontaneous movements to plug into and to continue to grow so they don't just dissipate. Right. I mean, it's a question of making sure that it is uh, a proletarian party, but I think one of the bigger questions here is how to relate to Western party democracy in the kind of anti-political era where it's it's pretty much falling apart and, and mass participation is at an all-time low in a way where people are kind of actively rejecting their so-called representation. And I, I think that I agree with you about troll candidates. A lot of the anti-politics people want Samuel L. Jackson to run for president. And, you know, there's a Samuel L. Jackson for president account on on Twitter that I think is worth looking at for examples of of a troll candidate for uh, fucking with the bourgeois state from a progressive perspective. I think something salient that a couple of people in Ukraine specifically went into earlier for this conversation is looking not just at like the internal functioning of the party itself, but also the social context that exists in, 
Whereas looking at the SPD, something that McNair doesn't really go into is how they had this dense network of affiliated organizations, institutions that people would interact with the SPD through, whether they're like co-ops or trade unions or educational institutions that let the SPD cast this like larger shadow on the class than you'd see just from its membership. And I think that's something definitely look for when trying to apply their uh, this Kautskian revolutionary strategy for today. Yeah, and I just wanted to elaborate too. Like I, I, I'm insistent on this idea of like a party of activists, both because of what Grant was touching on with like this anti-political era that uh, we've entered, but also with uh, in regards to the how difficult it is to have you know a more traditional party, especially in the United States. It's also, as I said, still difficult in Europe, but our government does not make it easy at all doing that kind of, uh, you know, education program, co-ops, unions, mutual aid networks, all those kind of things are a better bet to have institutions, not to build a base per se, but to have institutions for a base to be involved with and to continue to grow once it spontaneously arises. I don't agree with everything that anti-politics argues for, but I think the idea that, you know, we need politicians on the left who, like, don't give a fuck about, you know, the respectability of bourgeois government and to just speak their mind. I think that's actually very, it's a very good point. And I think we do need that. I kind of like that. I can't remember her name, but the indigenous woman who said, let's impeach the fucker. Like as much as I'm skeptical of the new democratic socialism that's trying to infiltrate the democratic party, I think that was, that was cool to me. And I think that's a sign that that, that kind of space is opening up for more class independent people to go in and be like, yeah, let like fuck, not only fuck Trump, let's not only impeach that fucker, but let's impeach all of you because y'all suck. You know what I mean? Right, right. Like that level of antagonism, but towards the whole regime, yeah. Trump, the Democrats, everything. And when I imagine Samuel L. Jackson running for president, I imagine in the same way that uh, my friend Joe uses the term face hugger, the way uh, Donald Trump just attached himself to the top of the Republican Party like an alien and just took over in this weird antagonistic way. I would love to see, as political breakdown continues, somebody to mess up the Democratic Party in a kind of similar way, but with more progressive aims than Donald Trump. Again, Samuel L. Jackson is a funny example of somebody who would be fucking hilarious to do that, and I hope he does. And it's, it's, it, it right. kind of depends on your ability even to defy the left in certain ways, whether you would be able to do that. And so I think it, that opens up a whole different discussion. There's one last thing from that section on Marxism as a political platform that I, I wanted to say here. Uh, a Marxist party then consists in principle of nothing more than a party which is committed to the ideas that the working class can only emancipate itself and humanity through struggling for communism, and that the struggle for communism can only be victorious through the action of the working class. So that's his minimal definition of a Marxist party. Now, Tom, there's two sections on the state and nation for some reason. And if you scroll down, there's a section on party. We've been talking a lot about party. Where do you think we should go? Okay, party, this is a quote from the start I've underlined in my book, so it's obviously very important. The idea that the working class need to unite and organize for political action, action at the level of the state, addressing the society as a whole, was inherited by Marx and Engels from Chartism. It was opposed by the Prudunus, Prudonist. I have pronounced that right? Prudonists. Yeah, Prudonists. The irony of me not knowing a French pr pronunciation. And getting corrected by me. Double irony. Double irony. 
too irony for me, who advocated simply building a cooperative movement. It was opposed by the Bakunists in the name of revolutionary spontaneity, direct action, and the revolutionary strike. So like, to me, I think the idea of the party just really makes sense. Like the thing is with the left, a lot of different, it seems to me, different elements of the left have this kind of, I don't know, fetishization of one form of organizing over another. It would seem to me that if we were ever going to be successful, you need to organize at every level of society. And so the party is just one of those elements that would need to be done, much like all the other elements need to be done at the same time. But let's take a look at this again. And I think that McNair is correctly Marxian about something in that there there is a difference between what the Marxists and what Marx is arguing in general. Most of the time, what most people consider to be Marxism in a, in a political sense versus the idea that all the organizations that we'll need will pop up in the course of struggle. That is more of a Bakuninist idea, and that's not to discredit it, but McNair will make this kind of clear. It's not that we can't have anything that pops up during the struggle. That would be absurd. That would be a manager's ideology. But Marx is kind of pointing to something that people can do in you know the movement's off time, in a way. One of the things that I just want to double back on is that I, I think McNair, in the way that a lot of Marxists treat early Marx as juvenilia, totally butchers what Marx means by the word, word political. And he goes and says, the idea that the working class needed to unite and organize for political action action at the level of state addressing society as a whole was inherited by Marx and Engels from Chartism. But Marx so at length criticizes this idea that a purely political, that the will, that just trying to use the state without social and economic foundations can affect a social revolution. He, he says in um, the critical notes on the King of Prussia, Quote, a social revolution possesses a total point of view because even if it is confined to only one factory district, it presents a protest by man against a dehumanized life because it proceeds from a point of view of the particular real individual because the community against whose separation from himself the individual reacting is the true community of man, human nature. In contrast, the political soul of revolution consists in the tendency of the classes with no political power to put an end to their isolation from the state and from power. Its point of view is that of the state, of an abstract totality which exists only through its separation from real life and which is unthinkable in the absence of an organized antithesis between the universal idea and the individual existence of man. However limited an industrial revolt may be, it contains within itself a universal soul, and however universal a political revolt may be, its colossal form conceals a narrow split. And I know this kind of sounds abstract, but I think that if you look at the way these McNairist projects turn into sects jockeying for state power and are so overwhelmingly concerned with the internals of the left, and that happens for this kind of draperist sect too with Marxist center in my opinion, this myopic view of politics as everything and politics first before the proletariat and before the social, I think it's very harmful. And I think that it's throughout McNair's work, really. 
Is it true that of all the revolutions, most of them had little social revolutionary elements? Well, where, where revolutions are successful yeah. is based on their, their social acceptance. And Marx's critique of Robespierre in the text I just quoted, Critical Notes on King of Prussia, is that uses political will to try and change the world without social and economic foundations. And that he... Yeah, he like talks about the limits of a political revolution in reference to the French Revolution and why so, the French Revolution fell apart in a lot of ways and was taken back over. That's why, like, to me, I don't read this as, like, purely political, ignoring the social. I think perhaps maybe McNair does ignore the social too much, but the way I read this is that, you know, where it says action at the level of the state addressing this the society as a whole, the way I think of that is that you need both political and social. And I do see political as going downstream from the social. And so I do think that sometimes Marxists do get too stuck in the political, but I think it's a mistake to completely abandon the political. So as a critique of this book, I think that it's heavily missing an element on the social element. Because if we think about what we're really looking for, we're looking for a social revolution, really. Because if you have a social revolution, right. the political revolution would probably be a function of the social revolution. This book seems to be largely a thing about how do you organize the political element. And it doesn't focus on the development of the social. So I think we need to be quite clear uh, uh, with what this book is. And I think that's a big critique of it. Uh, but in fairness to it, I don't think he's trying to do everything. He's just trying to sh do that. What should the political strategy be as opposed to the social strategy? Yeah. Um, and in fact, after the passage I quoted, Marx says the guy he's critiquing, the Prussian. So when I say Prussian, talking about the guy he's critiquing, brings his essay to a close worthy of it with the following sentence. A social revolution without a political soul i.e. without a central insight organizing it from the point of view of the totality is impossible. And so then Marx analyzes that and he says that, okay, so that's either nonsense or that makes sense, but it's, it's like a paraphrase. He says, a social revolution with a political soul is either a complete piece of nonsense if by social revolution the Prussian understands that a social revolution as opposed to a political revolution, while at the same time he endows the so social revolution with a political rather than a social soul or else a social revolution with a political soul is nothing but a paraphrase of what is usually called a political revolution or a revolution pure and simple. Every revolution dissolves the old order of society. To that extent, it is social. Every revolution brings down the old ruling power. To that extent, it is political. The Prussian must choose between this paraphrase and nonsense. But whether the idea of a social revolution with a political soul is paraphrase or nonsense, there is no doubt about the rationality of a political revolution with a social soul. All revolution, the overthrow of the existing ruling power and the dissolution of the old order is a political act. But without revolution, socialism cannot be made possible. It stands in the need of this political act, just as it stands in the need of destruction and dissolution. But as soon as its organizing functions begin and its goal, its soul emerges, socialism throws its political mask aside. I think that gets into Marx's kind of like crazy ambivalence about the word political. And I know that I can seem pedantic when I jump into it. 
but I think it can really inform us in our time when like the 20th century was a disaster when it comes to our relationship to the state. Yeah, it, it's difficult to strike the right balance here because yes, McNair is following a lot of Marxists in kind of, and Marx himself has to be said, like Marx stops talking about, you know, the, so, the social versus the political in the way that he did when he was younger. And he starts doing things more. He, as a matter of fact, he stops talking like that. He stops talking like a Hegelian as he gets older. He starts talking more in terms of bourgeois politics, proletarian politics. So it's maybe good to like stop back into the earlier Marx, but also honestly, like the liberal views of revolution. If you listen to Mike Duncan's fabulous Revolutions podcast. He makes a similar distinction between political and social revolution. And very consistently, you had, you know, enlightened liberals that wanted political revolution, but not social revolution. And, you know, the socialists that took the social quite seriously, right? There's a whole element of this that has sort of been lost to history where socialists were necessarily concerned with social revolution. And that's not to say that what McNair has to say about the party or even, you know, what Marx thinks about politics more generally doesn't hold because as you, even you admit Grant, this is a weird double sort of dance that Marx is doing and he wants to put aside the political mask, but nonetheless, there is that political mask. And to the extent that this is the form, but not the content, we are concerned with forms. We're not beyond them. We're not yet transcendent. Right. But if those forms negate the very content we're seeking to achieve, we have to be aware of that. And I think that no one's unaware of that. Yeah. 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 I I know that you are. I know that you are. But I think that McNair might be missing things that you aren't. And sure. I think that McNair has a whole essay about how the early Marx is basically juvenilia. And I think that by doing so, and frankly, I would argue somebody like Gary Teeple makes the great argument connecting the early Marx to the works on political economy. And I would say, too, that it's very clear the ambivalence when he's arguing against the abstentionists and he has to use the word politics. There's clear ambivalence there in the 1870s. You know, the work I quoted, that's the 1840s. In the 1870s, Marx has this ambivalence when he's def- even defending the political form. And in the writings on the Paris Commune is talking about society reabsorbing the state's functions away from politics. So I do not think you can dismiss this as the early Marx or juvenilia to Am talk I? About the social and political antagonism. And I don't think you are, but I think that McNair does. Okay. Like, it's not that it's wrong to talk about politics. It's that it's glaring in a critique of the 20th century that he's making, that he's still so caught up in this high level where, like, people I know who follow McNair, it feels like they're more concerned about, well, what if Bukharin allied with Trotsky like this and this and this? And sure, we could have had a better Soviet Union, but but we live today, one, and two, we can't strategize presupposing that far and away politics where the proles aren't involved is like the way we're going to be doing things. And I feel like McNair's thinking is kind of trapped in that in certain ways. I mean, McNair has good qualities, but at least some of his acolytes. There's this kind of dialectical dance where it's like you're expanding the political and where you're dissolving the 
divide between it and civil market society, between the political and everyday life in a way that transcends both for Marx. And it's really, you can't just say, do away with all political action. I, I completely agree. But it is so contextualized in Marx, what political action is and should mean, and, and, and that it's the proletariat using a political party, not about the victory of the left. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. (laughs) 